Revelation 1, verses 4 through 8. Give her to the reading of God's holy word. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So this morning our our sermon text is basically the opening greeting. That's what we usually call it, the opening greeting of the book of Revelation. Now, that being the case, if you've read, uh, I know many of you have read a lot of parts of the Bible. You've read probably Paul's epistles and all the New Testament letters uh, probably a number of times. And sometimes when when you're familiar with these texts, and you've read them over and over again, and you read, for instance, for example, you know Paul's letter to the Philippians, and you read his opening greeting, you know something like grace and peace. You, sometimes you kind of just gloss right past those words and think, well, it's just, you know, when you write a letter, you probably don't put a whole lot of thought into the, you know, dear John, dear Mary, whatever. We just kind of read right. We think of it as that, as just a simple opening greeting, but without much. Uh, really significant uh, from it. We think of it as just, quote-unquote, the opening greeting, and so we don't give it much thought. Well, that would that would be a mistake, for I think there's a lot that we can and should learn from uh, and benefit from here in John's opening greeting, as with the other opening greetings and the other epistles. I think John's opening greeting here has a lot that we should learn from and a lot to teach us. Many of the other epistles in the New Testament have maybe not exactly the same, but similar kinds of opening greetings where the writer, you know, what does the writer do? The writer tells you who he is, who's writing the letter. He identifies and greets the original recipients of the letter or epistle. He offers an opening benediction of sorts. You know, Paul, one of his most common greetings is something like this, grace and peace to you from, well, John uses the same kind of of a phrase here. Uh, And also, very often the opening greeting of a letter at least hints at what's to come. It's kind of like it's kind of like a second prologue of sorts. You know, a prologue. If you're reading a book, if it has a prologue, very often it kind of lays out for you in simple terms, maybe brief terms. Here's what's to come. Here's to let you know what's going to be coming on in the rest of the book. Well, Revelation, the greeting that John gives us here, also hints at what's to come as far as the subject matter that he's going to tell us of in the rest. Of the letter. This one does all of those things. John identifies himself simply as John, verse one, just like just like back in verse one. Uh, this is the apostle John, one of the twelve original disciples and apostles of Christ. He's the author of the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John. Now, John's authorship of this book is well established; it is not in doubt. That uh, he could identify himself simply as John and not as a particular John tells you a lot. Now, the early church knew exactly which John this was that was being referred to as the, the author. Uh, the fact that this book was re- was accepted as canonical and as written by John from the earliest days tells us that, you know, from the very beginning, there was no doubt 
who the author of this book was, which John this was that was addressing uh, the churches. This was the Apostle John himself that is the one that wrote it. He addresses the epistle as follows. He says, quote, verse 4, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And here we see a number for the first time in in the book, very early on in verse 4, a number that's going to be very significant, and I choose that word carefully, in the book of, of Revelation. The number is seven. Other numbers also, the number three, for example, are going to be repeated in one way or another all through the book. And if you were to break out your concordance, I haven't done this yet, so I'm not going to give you a number. This will be your homework. Look at how many times the word, the number seven, is used in the book of Revelation. Even in the first chapter, it happens again and again and again. And it's going to be happening all through the book. Now, these seven churches in Asia, which are going to be mentioned by name later on in verse 11, as well as those seven letters in chapters 2 to 3. So he, he doesn't just say the seven churches. He starts to tell you who these seven churches were. Now, these were actual, real, local churches in the region of Asia Minor. Asia Minor had more than seven churches. So the fact that John picks out seven by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is very telling. It's for a purpose. Uh, These seven churches, there were no doubt specific reasons why these seven were chosen and not seven other ones. These seven churches here had their own particular struggles and conflicts, strengths and weaknesses that are going to be addressed in those letters. If you've read the book a number of times, you know in chapters 2 and 3, uh, Jesus addresses these churches and speaks of their particular things, their struggles, their sins, their their successes, all these things. Um, and no doubt these churches were, put, were chosen for those reasons. They were dealing with specific things at the time that John wrote this book and had this letter passed on to them for those reasons. But that number 7 often signifies... The, the idea of completeness, of wholeness in, in Scripture, and no doubt in the book of Revelation as well. And so that's why seven churches, we think, are mentioned here. Those seven churches, the seven churches in these first three chapters, what they really do is they, they stand in the place of, and as types or representatives of, the entire church in general throughout all the last days the age in which we live now between the ascension of Christ and his return. So when you read of these seven churches, don't just think of it as some kind of historical nicety or thing to be interested in. That Oh, these seven churches, they had problems and John dealt with them. I think these seven churches represent all the church throughout the ages until Christ returns. And I think that's made clear for us, and we'll see that later on when we get to those seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 to 3 for, you know, think about this. It's, it's kind of strange, but John, and really the Lord Jesus, writes letters within a letter. Epistles within an epistle, seven of them. And in every single case, all seven letters to the seven churches, you have this, this refrain verbatim in each one. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. He doesn't say, for instance, the Church of Philadelphia, let he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church in Philadelphia, your church. It implies that. He says, let him who has an ear, him who has an, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a big hint for us to know that these letters and this whole epistle is written not just to them, but to us as well.
And so Revelation was written to and written for the benefit and edification of the church in every age and every place until Christ comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That means that this book was written for us too. This book was written for our instruction and our edification and our encouragement in time of of trial and even of persecution. The message of the book of Revelation is a message that that is very much relevant to you and to me and in many ways remains as timely for us as it has ever been. I won't. I will try very hard. I can't guarantee or promise that I'll be able to be successful in this. I'm going to try very hard not to be overly argumentative in this as I preach through this book. I'm going to try very hard not to pick uh, on, for instance, our dispensational brethren. Um, but it almost. I almost can't help myself. At times, they teach this book in such a way as to make it irrelevant to you. All these things, at least after chapter three are far off in the future and have nothing to do with you. Some others, even of the Reformed variety, uh, some of our brothers will say that it's all past. And so by doing that, what do they say? Well, it's irrelevant to you too. They make the same mistake from a different direction. Well, I, I say this book, and, and uh, rightly so, this book is very revel- relevant to you and to me now and will be until Christ returns. Well, the first thing I'd like us to look at this morning from our text is what I'll call the benediction. The benediction of Revelation. You know, we have the benediction every service at the end. Well, John uh, and the Lord here puts one at the very beginning, doesn't he? You know, just like a lot of the epistles we've already seen begin with a message of grace and peace to you. That was a common greeting of the Apostle Paul, as you know, in his letters to the various churches. Uh, very often that's, that's the way he started almost all of his letters, even Galatians. They had some problems. He still said grace to you and peace. When he wrote the letter, it's a benediction of sorts. It's a word of blessing. That's what a benediction is. A bene, bene is good. And diction is, it's a good word. It's a word of blessing. And this word of blessing isn't just from John. What what good would that do, really? But it's also from our triune God and Savior. And are we too not in need of the grace and peace from our triune God? Is that not what we're offered here in the opening of the letter? That is, grace and peace to you from from God. What does the church in every age need more than the grace and peace of God in our lives? What do we as believers in Christ need in our lives more than that? These aren't just words that John throws in the beginning of the letter for us to just disregard and not think much of. In his helpful commentary on the book of Revelation, Joel Beakey writes this. He says, This Trinitarian salutation, it's a greeting, this Trinitarian salutation begins with grace and peace. I suppose many people think of Revelation as a book of doom and gloom, couched in terms of wrath, conflict, and judgment. They think of fire and brimstone, thunder and lightning, cursing, tribulation, and wrath, anything but grace and peace. But these dark elements are features of a much larger picture, the grace of God in Christ and the peace of God that passes understanding. These are seen against the backdrop of wrath and tribulation. I think that's a very helpful thing to say at the beginning uh, of our study and uh, of our reading through this book. If, If your reading of this book, if the things that you've read about this book, if the movies you watch about this book, if they are designed to, to, to cause fear and loathing and doom and gloom and, and, and fright in you, uh, put them away. 
For a believer, that is not what this book is meant to do. This is not scared straight. This is not, this is not to bring you uh, to a state of fear and depression. This is to encourage the suffering and persecuted church. It's not doom and gloom. It is grace and peace to God's people, even if in some ways it's doom and gloom to the unrepentant. And no doubt there's a, a host of reasons why the church in every age, not just our age, not just in John's day, needs to be pointed back to the grace and peace of God. For in this world, Jesus tells us, in this world, we're going to have trouble and tribulation. God's people will often face, even in our day, affliction and persecution for bearing witness to the word of God and the testimony of Christ. In John 16.33, our Lord Jesus Christ says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have tribulation, trouble. But take heart, that's the message of Revelation, take heart because Christ has overcome the world and we overcome and conquer in him. It's only in Christ Jesus that you and I have the grace, which is the unmerited favor, undeserved favor and kindness of God towards sinners, And it's only by the grace of God in Christ that sinners like you and I can have the peace of God, real peace. Peace that, as Philippians 4, 7 says, surpasses all understanding. Only God gives that kind of peace, and you only have that kind of peace through Christ. In the book of Romans, Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have what? Romans 5, 1, peace with God. If you have peace with God, you have peace. And if you don't have peace with God, Every peace you have is false, false peace. And notice John doesn't just point us to the grace and peace of God. He also points us to the, the Trinitarian God of grace and peace. In verses 4 to 5, John writes, Grace to you and peace. And where is this grace and peace from? Grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. That's where your grace and peace comes from as believers. The Christian faith, uh, all through this greeting, all through the Bible, the Christian faith is a Trinitarian faith. From start to finish, we worship and serve one God in three persons, so those three persons are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And our salvation also is the gift and work of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who ordained, accomplished, and applied our salvation to us. They each, each person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, has a role to play and has a, a part to play in your salvation and mine. God the Father is mentioned here, quote, as him who is and who was and who is to come. This speaks of God in his eternality that he always has been that he is not bound by time. It speaks of his immutability, that God does not change. He is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, Isaiah fifty-seven, fifteen. He always has been, he always will be. And he's in no way bound by time. He's the only one that sees the end and declares the end from the beginning. We are, we are creatures of time. We, we can't even talk about God without using time words that in some ways don't even apply to God. They're almost, we, we have no other way to talk. God is, is not bound by time. Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10, God says this, I am God, 
and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And then what does he say? In what way is there none like him? None like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He's not just saying that, God is not just saying, I know what's going to happen. That's true, but it's a vast understatement. He's saying, I know what's going to happen because I have determined and purposed what's going to happen. And nothing can thwart my will because I'm the only God. I'm God and no one else is. My purposes will, his counsel will stand, which means all of his promises and all of his threatenings will come to pass. Not a word from God's mouth will fall to the ground unfulfilled. Not only that, but he's described here as the one who is to come or who is coming in verse 4. That phrase uh, is repeated three times in verses 4 through 8. In our English translations, it reads a little differently, but the Greek phrase is the exact same in all three instances. To say that God is the one, quote, who is to come is not just to say that God always is going to exist. That's certainly true. Uh, it's, it's talking about the fact that he's going to come again in judgment. To say that he is the one to come, or the one who is to come, is to speak of the certainty of, of judgment. We recite from time to time the Nicene Creed and what it says of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. That, that is what is spoken of God and God the Father in particular. He is the one who is to come. He's always here, he's omnipresent, but when he, when he talks about coming, in that sense, it's a coming in judgment. Now you might think it's strange that the Lord's return, his coming in judgment, might be a recurring theme in the opening greeting and blessing of this book. But these particular truths of God's word are of great comfort to the suffering and persecuted church, aren't they? If you're, if you're being persecuted uh, for your faith in Christ, the, the, the coming of God in judgment is not... A frightful thing, it's a comforting thing. The truth of the return of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead should fill the unrepentant with unspeakable fear and conviction and horror, but it should speak great comfort to the heart of every believer in Christ. Well, you know, very often we think in terms, when we speak of the Trinity, we, we say it in order, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Uh, well, very often Scripture doesn't follow our order. Uh, and here that's no exception. John points us to the Holy Spirit next, and he says that this grace and peace are also from, quote, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, verse 4. Now, if you're reading that and you're thinking to yourself, seven spirits, I thought we said three. I thought we said three in one, the three persons of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and he is one. He is not seven. But here he's described not in regard to his person, which is one, but in regard to his office and his operations in the work of our salvation. As the church is described as sevenfold here in our text, so the Holy Spirit in his presence and work in and through the church is also described as what? Sevenfold. There's no church, no true church, that's outside of the Holy Spirit's operation and presence and influence. James Ramsey, an old... Puritan writer writes this, he says, this, this is but a striking symbolical expression after the manner of this book for the perfect and manifold variety and fullness of the operations of the Holy Spirit bestowed upon all the churches of Christ. 
That's, that's the emphasis here. It's why it's sevenfold, why the seven spirits. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit, but he fills the church in all places. All seven of these churches that in, in Asia that were typical of the church throughout the ages uh, each enjoy the, the full work and presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit within them. Well, last but not least, John points us to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that this grace and peace are also, quote, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Notice the number three is implied there. He's described in a threefold manner as our prophet, priest, and king. First, Jesus Christ is called the faithful witness. He's the prophet. That's his ministry as a prophet that he, he continues to reveal and has revealed to us God, the way of salvation, his will for his redeemed people for us, for our lives. Not only that, but Christ is also the firstborn of the dead. What's he, he's talking about the resurrection. Here he's talking about Christ as our great high priest in his death on the cross, the cross, his glorious resurrection on the third day, which is also the guarantee of our resurrection. If Christ arose, we too will rise one day from the grave. And lastly, John refers to Christ Jesus as the ruler of kings on earth. That's probably my favorite phrase in this whole part of the chapter so far. The ruler of kings on earth. This is one of the themes, the main themes that you're going to find all through the book of Revelation. In a way, this is the point. Like I said, this this opening greeting is hinting at what is to come in the rest of the book. Who's the King of Kings and, and, and Lord of Lords? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And He's not ruling later. He's ruling when? Now. He's enthroned, as we confess every time we say the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's, he's not inactive. He's not seated like He's not doing anything. He's reigning from the right hand of God over all things. He is the ruler of kings on earth. Now, now sometimes it doesn't feel like he's reigning. Right? He's, he's reigning over all things at the right hand of God, but to us, to our weak faith, it doesn't always seem like it. We see the suffering and the persecution of God's people on this earth, the way the church is harassed, and sometimes we think it doesn't feel like God's in charge. And John says at the very beginning, he's the ruler the prince of the kings on the earth. He's in charge. He's reigning over them right now. Later on in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, verse 16, we're told that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. The book begins and ends telling us that our king is the king, and he's ruling over all things, even over all kings right now. Well, the next thing I'd like us to look at in our text here is in this opening greeting is not just a benediction but a doxology of praise for our triune God in Jesus Christ in verses 5 to 6 John goes on and he writes to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen you know John John can't help himself he talks about this grace and peace from, from God the Father, the, the Spirit, and the Son, and he breaks forth in praise. He, he can't, it's like he can't help but do it when he thinks of the grace and peace of God and the greatness of God and his grace. He breaks forth in praise and doxology. He can't help it. And this, this should be our grateful response as well, shouldn't it? In some ways, you could also say this is the point of the book of Revelation. All through the book from time to time, you're going to see things you're going to see visions of worship. 
You're going to see visions of victory and conquering, visions of, of Satan, the evil one, and his uh, and, and his uh, his workers trying to harass and persecute the church, and God giving victory in His Son. And then you're going to see worship, elders and and whatnot bowing before the throne. What that's a theme all through the book, and John starts it right here in the opening greeting. That should be our grateful response to God's grace and worship. You know, what are you going to be doing in heaven forever? Worshiping, worshiping our Lord, our Savior, our King. The grace of God in Christ should lead us to praise our God in Christ. And the more in awe that you and I are of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the more assured we are of his love toward us and the unshakable nature of his kingdom and our victory in him, the better equipped you and I will be to endure whatever this world throws our way. Praise is not incidental. Praise is not a throw-in. Praise and worship are are part of, of our victory. It's part of what equips you for that, to endure until Christ calls or comes. Now, the first thing John mentions here in this praise of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is that, quote, He is Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. You know, this this book about the end times, the last things and all that, what does he do right at the get-go, right at the jump? The gospel. Here's the point. Here's the point about this king, the one who is the ruler of the kings on earth, has freed us from our sins by his blood. It's an amazing thing to think about. That's the source of everything else, that Jesus loved us and died for us. And rose again, Galatians 2.20, Paul puts it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me, past tense, because he's talking about a particular act in the cross, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now notice, if you remember where John was when he wrote the letter, notice what he says here. The wording he chooses, Christ has freed or loosed us from our sins by his blood. I could spend a whole sermon just on this one phrase, but I won't. Where was John when he wrote and received this epistle, when when he wrote the epistle, received it from Christ by the angel? Revelation 1 9, he tells us, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, And the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was exiled. He was in prison for the gospel. He was enduring tribulation, unquote, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It was because of his faithfulness to the message of the gospel that he was in exile. And yet, how does he describe himself? And he includes us with it. He doesn't just say me, he says us, as someone who had been freed by Christ Jesus, by his blood. He was in prison, in exile. You could could forgive him, humanly speaking, for being despondent, discouraged. And yet what does he do? He's praising the Lord, and he's saying that Christ freed, freed us. He's saying it's not just me, it's you too. We've been freed by his blood. The man who the Lord has freed from his sins is no man's prisoner, no matter how many chains he has on his arms and legs, no matter how far away he's exiled. Even if John was chained, he knew the word of God, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.9, cannot be bound. Paul knew that too. Paul was in prison could have said, how can God work without me? That's not what he said at all. He said, I'm, I'm in chain, but the word of God cannot be bound. And John's praise of his Savior couldn't be bound here in this opening greeting 
as well. Not only was John free in Christ, even in exile, but he was part of Christ's kingdom. You know, you could you could say John John could have sat there in that prison cell, whatever he was in, in Patmos, and said, "I'm on the bench. You know, I'm I'm out of the game. I'm I'm you know I can't do anything now from this dumb jail cell." And yet he says he was freed by Christ's blood, and he was a part of God, of Christ's kingdom, a kingdom and priests to his God. He was able to serve Christ, was able to reign with him even while he was in chains. When he speaks of Christ making us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, uh, you might know he's quoting from Exodus when he says that phrase. He's quoting from Exodus 19.6. In Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, it says this, You yourselves, this is after they were brought out of, out of Egypt, right? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, God says, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and here it is, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That's what Moses was told to tell the people. They had been brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, something he'll say again in the next chapter, which is where you have the Ten Commandments. Remember what? Remember the? If you you probably have the movie in your head when I bring it up, but when when Moses went to Pharaoh, what did he tell him? Over and over again. I won't do the accent. You know, let my people go. Let my people go. What does God say? What's the reason God says to Pharaoh to let him go? One, they're his people, that they may serve me. Here he's telling him, this is how you're going to serve me as a kingdom of priests and a holy. Nation. John tells us by quoting that, that phrase from Exodus 19 that we who are in Christ by faith have been freed from the house of slavery, even from our sins, just like Israel was redeemed from slavery in Egypt in order that they might serve God. In Christ, you and I have been freed from slavery to sin in order to serve God as his kingdom and priests. Same, same idea in an even greater sense. No wonder John says to him, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, the last thing that our text points us to here is, uh, is that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ruler, and kings, ruler of the kings on earth, who is even now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling over all things for his church and for his glory, will one day come again with glory and make his glorious rule manifest for all to see. Verse 7, John says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. There's that phrase again, he's coming. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, when we went through the Gospel of Mark, we saw that phrase already about coming with the clouds. Coming with clouds to come with clouds is to come in judgment. It's to come in judgment, as if it's a picture of you know. We're, we, if you're watching the news right now, you're seeing all this stuff about the hurricane back back east in North Carolina. Well, those clouds, especially from the, from you look at those satellite pictures, are pretty impressive and awe-inspiring and kind of fearful. Well, it's the same kind of idea. God, Christ comes with clouds. It's a coming in in judgment as a storm of sorts. Christ, the King judges peoples and nations throughout history. He will one day judge the living and the dead on that last day, on the day of his wrath. Again, such a thing, such an idea is a terror 
to the unrepentant and the unbeliever. They will, quote, wail on account of him. That's also an Old Testament quotation. But for believers in Christ, what do we say? What does John say at the end of verse 7? Even so, amen. It's not a terror to God's people. Because he's our king. That king that's returning to judge the living and the dead is our king and our Savior. Finally, in verse 8, God himself speaks where he says, I am, even that's a title for God, I am, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. There's that phrase again, the Almighty. Now our triune God is the Alpha and the Omega. You might know, here's a Greek lesson for today, Alpha, just like the English alphabet, uh, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. It's the A of the Greek alphabet. Omega, and not Z, Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's as if God were saying, I am the A and the Z, or the A to Z. He's the beginning and the end of all things, is what he's saying. Our God is that. Our Redeemer is that. That our God is the Alpha and the Omega means that God, our Lord, our King, is the Lord of history, which means he's the Lord of the future as well. He's the one that all of his purposes will come to pass. Nothing on this earth comes to pass without the sovereign decree and watchful eye of our God, who is the Alpha and the Omega. Nothing can prevent him from bringing his purposes to pass. Nothing can prevent him from making all things, all things, work together for your good and his glory. Nothing. Nothing on this earth can possibly do any of those things, can stop his will from coming to pass. This is a message that's going to be repeated all through the book, through various symbols and and images and visions in the book of Revelation. This is a message that the church militant, that's you and me, the church on this side of glory, is always going to need to read and hear and keep and be blessed and strengthened by, as verse 3 said last week when we looked at that. May God himself work in us by his spirit that you and I might have eyes to see and ears to hear everything that he has unveiled for us in this book, even all of his word, that you and I might be receiving his grace and peace, praising our triune God of our salvation, serving him in our generation, and ever looking forward to the sure hope of heaven with the Lord forever. Amen. Let's let's pray. Lord God, we, we give you praise. We know that we uh, our praise is weak and stammering and, and nothing remotely what you deserve, but we, we thank you for your grace and peace that we have through Christ because of your great love for sinners such as us. Thank you for setting your love upon us from before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before you in love only by your grace in Christ. We thank you that you are the one who is the ruler of the kings on this earth, that those who, who think that they're going to set themselves against against the Lord and against his Christ can never have victory, will never win, and that the Lord who sits in heavens laughs and holds them in derision and tells them to kiss the Son lest they perish in his wrath, because his, your wrath is quickly kindled against those who would harm the apple of your eye. Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding into your all of your word, but into the book of Revelation, that we might not be discouraged from reading it, that we might see what all these pictures and visions uh, hold out before us, that you are the, the ruler of the kings on earth, and that you will bring us finally to victory, that we are all conquerors, even as Paul says, more than conquerors through him who loved us, that we are conquerors because Christ 
the Almighty King and, and King of Kings and Lord of Lords has conquered and is going forth to conquer. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for that. And we pray that you would give us grace also to be uh, your faithful witnesses here, that we would bear witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ and the word of God in such a way that you might be pleased to use and bless and call call sinners to yourself, even through each of us and through us as a church and through the other churches here in this town, that sinners might be converted to Christ and be able to join the, the chorus of praise uh, just as we have, have read about and have sung even today. Uh, give us grace to be used by you for your glory, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.